Hi, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser with Dry Eye Coach Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Mark Blumenstein of the Schwartz Laser Eye Center. We'll also be talking with Dr. Scott Houseworth, Assistant Professor and Director of the Ocular Surface Clinic at the University of Colorado. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you today? Fantastic, Whitney. Good, good. Well, thanks for joining us. This is a first for a Dry Coach podcast. Typically, we have feature one doctor at a time, so we're going to really in, we're really going to take a look at our skills today and see if we can not talk over each other too much. So I'm going to go ahead and start the questions, and we're going to be talking about mybography today and the role that it plays in your practice. So just to start off, you know, Dr. Houseworth, can you tell us how you're using mybography in your practice right now, and really what patients you're typically using it on. Yeah, so um, mybography is a, an essential part of our dry eye evaluations. Um, anyone that's coming in uh, who's either referred uh, either internally or from the external community uh, into the ocular surface clinic um, receives uh, mybography. Um, generally speaking, we're using um, that to image the lower glands or the glands of the lower lid first, and if there's significant change or dropout, then we'll image the uppers. Um, we also use it uh, following any type of meibomian gland procedures uh, to check for changes either in um, structure uh, or how it matches up to function. So we do it on our initial evals, and then anything that we do that, that may affect uh, the meibomian gland function, we'll, we'll re-image them usually about six months later. Now, I guess the follow-up that I would have to that, and I think a lot of our colleagues who are listening might want to know, is why lowers most often and sometimes why lowers only? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think, um, first off, time does play a role. Uh, even though we have a little bit longer appointment slots for our patients, uh, the lower uh, the lower lids typically are where we're going to see the majority of uh, early dropout occur, and so we're, we're targeting that first. It also saves our mm -hmm. technicians and, and me a little bit of time. And again, like I said, if there's significant change there, then we'll, we'll go and image the upper lids. There can be a striking uh, difference between the lowers and the uppers in some patients. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Blumenstein, what about you? Um, how are you so, using uh, biography in practice? Yeah, I, I take a little bit different approach. I mean, I think my my practice and Scott's practice is probably a little bit different. Um, you know, him being in a university setting and having a a dry eye moniker, um, I think he's probably seeing a little bit more challenging cases. Uh, the practice that I'm in, we're essentially, you know, doing comprehensive eye exams and we're doing patients who are referred in for cataract surgery or refractive surgery. Um, my goal um, and now uh, of late and actually probably the last 18 months um, is really to kind of carpet bomb every patient, just to look at every person's meibomian mm -hmm. glands and draw a distinction between, as Scott said, form and function. And to be quite honest with you, he, he probably is the person that I heard that years ago. We can look at the glands and that doesn't always tell us what they're really doing or what's coming out of them. And so right. for me, every patient that comes in the door now for a comprehensive eye exam or anybody who's considering having surgery um, and obviously the patients that are symptomatic, we are doing a mybography on. And to that same you, point... Go ahead. Yeah, what? go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, do you see any trends from that? You know, because well, Scott and I are seeing these highly symptomatic patients a lot of right. times. So sometimes it skews our perspective on what things are like. If you're doing, as you said, the carpet bomb approach, what, right. what trends are you seeing? Well, the, the irony of that is that right. I think that we as clinicians are biased. And I think that right. our bias always leads towards, you know, well, you're a young male, you know, so the likelihood of you having dry eye or I mean, even meibomian gland dysfunction, which we know to be, you know, extremely prevalent um, in dry eye patients, is probably low, so I'm not going to do that. And for example, like, you know, glare testing, you know, doing a bath. Mm-hmm. We don't do a brightness acuity test on a 25-year-old. Um, and the main reason being is, is that we don't anticipate or expect there to be glare. However, mm-hmm. I think that with this disease state and with our capabilities now of evaluating what the glands look like, we have to readjust or kind of like create a, a sea change, if you will, in the way we think about this um, of dry eye. Um, so what the trend I'm seeing is, is that patients that I never would have thought were going to have a problem, I'm seeing tremendous amount, if not, you know, 25, 30% of, of dropout or a lot of tortuosity um, on younger patients, um, as well mm-hmm. as, you know, patients who, are just, who aren't symptomatic yet. And I mm-hmm. think that there, there's a huge difference, too, between wellness, you know, us like saying, let's do something to stop it from getting worse so they don't become symptomatic, um, or versus now that we're in the throes of this, what can we do to reverse it or slow it down? So my friend right. is, is that I'm just shocked by how much, how much gland changes I'm actually seeing. Do those gland changes that you're seeing in those sort of atypical demographic patients, the men, the younger patients, is there, is, is there a discordance with signs and symptoms between those patients? Do you see, you know, shorter truncated glands, some element of, of what we would arguably define as atrophy, and then are they asymptomatic or does it seem to correlate? I think it's kind of all of the above, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. And, and Scott, you can ag- agree to disagree. Yeah, I would agree with that, actually. Um, and it, it's striking, Mark, I think you touched on a really important um, point. In, in fact, I like your approach of carpet bombing. And here it's, it's a little bit different because you're right. I mean, we're getting a lot of patients that are basically here specifically for, you know, uh, secondary or tertiary uh, you know, diagnosis and management of ocular surface disease. But, but I think that the thing that's most striking to me is that we have uh, growing literature support uh, for evidence of this occurring at a much, much younger age. Uh, you know, uh, Priya Gupta's paper from uh, 2018 showed 42% um, of pediatric patients actually showed some level of, of atrophy. And so that's a whole entire demographic that I think most of us would probably have sort of shook our heads at and thought, oh, no, that's, that's probably going to be a normal patient. Well, this stuff probably is happening uh, much earlier than, than we initially gave it credit for. So I think it's important to try to capture that, and I'm glad you're doing that, Mark. Yeah. So I, I one mean, thing honestly, I'd Wait, Whitney, honestly, I think I, I look at mybography now the way we did 25 years ago with, with topography. You know, it was right. kind of an elitist kind of like, ooh, specialty to have a topographer in your practice. And right. I, think, I think it's more rare not to have a topography today. And I really do feel that my biography is, is, is going in that direction. Right. Yeah, certainly with the... 
Uh, sorry, Go ahead. Yeah, Go ahead, certainly with, with some of the newer technologies, we're seeing you know, prices coming down and it's becoming a lot more accessible uh, to the clinician that's in a regular primary care practice. And so I agree with Mark on this that we're going to probably see, and I think we've already started to see sort of a groundswell of this being incorporated into a number of uh, traditionally primary care practices across the country. And, and it'll be I think one of those things that we're going to capture on our pediatric patients on a pretty regular basis, and it's, an, it's another important way of tracking patients and, and making sure that the end of or the later years of their life are you know, just as comfortable and productive as the earlier. Right, you're right. You both raised great points. So I guess one of the things that I think that a lot of our colleagues want to know is, and, and being able to ask experts like you is a great opportunity, when do you do it again? So a patient comes in, you've carpet bombed them, you've done the, <laughs> you've done the, you've done the photography. When are you going to do that mybography again? Are you going to do it three months later, six months later, a year? When do you follow up on that one? Yeah. Um, well, like I like I mentioned earlier, for anyone that actually receives um, like any kind of meibomian gland oriented procedure, like uh, clearing, mm -hmm. expression, probing, et cetera, we're trying to repeat that um, at the very latest, six months after. And on some patients, mm -hmm. I'm capturing at three months. On patients that are receiving more kind of medically or pharmaceutical-oriented therapy, um, <clears throat> then we're probably capturing it just once a year. Right. What about you, Mark? Right. What about you, Mark? Yeah, so very similar. I mean, to me, I look at it just like I would any other test that we do in the practice, um, you know, uh, whether it be um, interocular pressure, whether it be visual acuity, whether it be, I mean, if something's not right, then I look mm -hmm. at it and say, okay, let's, you know, we're going to interject, we're going to do something different, let's, or let's reevaluate it. Um, and so I bring them back sooner. Um, I, I feel with this disease state, though, I feel because we're kind of, I really feel we're kind of at the, the infancy of it. You know, and I, I keep re referring back to like topography. You know, back in the day, we would look at somebody with pellucid, and we thought it was just an irregular against the cell astigmatism, against the rule, excuse me, astigmatism. And now we realize that you know, it's 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 a uh, ectatic uh, disorder that we could see early on, or form frost, or other things. So I feel like we don't have a great bead as to determining whether or not we're looking at glands that have basically just kind of either completely atrophied or even uh, or collapsed on each other. And so I, I kind of want more information, so I tend to bring patients right. back a little sooner, but I, it's 100% when they come in for their, their comprehensive eye exam or they come in for like, you know, prior to surgery, I'm doing it every time and going back and looking and showing patients, you know, where we've gone and where we are now. So, Yeah, and that's exactly where I was heading with that. Uh, my next question, Mark, is how has it helped you in educating your patients? And do you think there's an impact to treatment compliance based on my biography? If, you know, when he, if, if I was to basically put, um, if I was to rate the things in my practice that are the most beneficial for patient education, bar none, pictures are a, a thousand words. And my biography to me is more, is probably the best education tool that I've ever had in the practice. And the main reason why is because we can look at something and say, look, this is cause and effect. 
this is where you started and this is and I can show pictures of what, you know, abnormal looks like or stages of abnormal. And before I ever show a patient what their topography or their topography, their mybography looks like on that given day, I will show them what we expect it to look like if you're a young healthy person, but you know, also this is what it would look like if we're starting to age and wear and tear and all that's normal. And then before I even done, they, they will sit there and, and ask me, well, what does mine look like? You know, where am I at? How right. is this? And it's just, it's, it's actually a really, really great opportunity to have discussions about, you know, what's happening. The glands are getting clogged, they're getting inflamed, you know, so this obstruction and this inflammation discussion, to me, really is kind of a launching point for all the other inflammatory or just environmental aspects of, of dry eye um, and my bony and gland dysfunction to give patients uh, what's in it for me, you know, what, what's, what's the whiff them for both them and for me. Right. You know, I, in my clinical experience, my biography above almost any test that I've done in dry really fills an educational void for the patients. A lot of these dry patients, especially the moderate to severe ones, come in, you really starve for reliable, good clinical information. And they always tend to lean in and say the same thing. You just told me something no one's ever told me. Yeah. And it's it, it provides great clinical uh, evidence. It helps us educate, but it also it, it's a point of practice distinction. While I, I think we're going to see more and more of it, as, as Scott said about accessibility, still it stands out that that practice takes dry seriously above a lot of their competitors. So yeah, Scott, I'm not, I'm you know. Go ahead. I was going to say I've, I'm going to I'm going to basically jump in on this and say I, I agree 100% that it's probably the most impactful tool that we have in terms of patient education. Um, I think we do need to be uh, I think we need to be a little bit careful about using verbs like you know changing or you know losing glands. I mean right. I think Agreed. what we're doing right now is imaging you know at a certain time point and we can kind of see how that changes, but we don't have great um, longitudinal studies to kind of show at what rate this happens in average individuals with obstructive MGD or, or if there's a high level of inflammation even, um, it, we just don't have good data to show at what rate those things occur. That being said, I think it's actually a call um, to action uh, for those people that are in the trenches as clinicians to try to image you know, at least once a year, maybe every six months, so that we can better understand the rate at which those things change. I, I think this is an area that optometry could really, you know, step into the lead and, and really kind of educate the entire medical community um, on how these changes occur and at what rate they occur. So I think that's a big knowledge gap that, that we as, um, you know, clinicians could really could really fill over the next couple of years. Yeah, and to, to right. that and point... You're, yeah, go what ahead, I was Mark. gonna say what I was gonna say too is is that from an educational tool, one one of the things that I love explaining to patients is is that I can't you know, my, my crystal ball has fallen off my desk, you know, years ago. So especially when patients say, Well, how long do I have before my cataracts turn bad? It's like, dude, I, I can't give you any indication as to what's gonna happen. And when we look at the um the mybography, one of the things that's always striking is patients like, So what does this mean for me? And I, I can be frank with them and say, look, I don't know. But what I do know is that it's changing. 
and it's going to have some impact on the quality of your vision. So I'd rather do something to try to stave that off or stop it or, you know, create or, or not stop is not the right word. Sorry, Scott, I know you don't like that. Is, or to, you know, slow it down, whatever I can, and get them to buy into the fact that, you know what, I don't know what it's going to be like, but let's do something today so that hopefully it's, it's not something that we have to, you know, aggressively work with later. Yeah, right. and the earlier you no, can I, treat it, the better it is for patients in, in all cases. So, And I think most people, you know, subscribe to that. You know, they may not always act on it 100%, but they subscribe to the theory that wellness is important, especially when it comes to things like these obstructive and inflammatory type of conditions. So, Scott, what treatments are you using to treat MGD? And that is a huge question, and I'm going to throw that to Mark as well. But really, you know, what are some things, and I know you can't list them all for, for time's sake, but what are some of the things that, that really resonate with you, at least from a, an initiation standpoint, perhaps, for, for patients in your clinic? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I've always kind of taken the approach, regardless of whether it's MGD or, you know, I guess aqueous deficient type dry eye, that inflammation is still a really important uh, part of this. And so every patient that we see, if they've got even advanced MGD, I'm still starting them on some type of topical immunomodulation. And it's actually, um, you know, been shown just over the years. I mean, uh, Nick Opitz did a paper a few years ago looking at Lotomax and MGD and showing that uh, the use of, you know, topical steroids improved um, uh, meibomian gland function. Uh, and then most recently, there was even a paper by Joe Tauber that showed that lafitograss even showed um, uh, effects of improving meibomian gland function. So I think that's an important part of it, um, controlling that. Now, as we kind of expand out from there, um, you know, making sure that they've got, you know, their dietary needs, um, you know, they're monitoring that stuff or on some type of omega supplement. Um, and then as as the level of obstruction or dysfunction increases, then we're, and if they've been on um, immunomodulation for a little while, then we're looking at, you know, more meibomian gland procedural type interventions um, Mm -hmm. to try to jumpstart the glands to get them to function better, you know, so things like uh, lipoflow, which has been around now for a while, or, or the new tear care, or even meibomian gland probing, we're offering all of those as uh, kind of secondary and tertiary level treatments um, to try to make sure patients uh, can improve and and, uh, engage with their their dysfunction. Yeah, excellent. That was well done and comprehensive yet concise. Mark, what do you say? I'm right there, you know, obviously uh, along the same lines. And for me, it's like what I want patients to understand when and we kind of circle back to the question you asked before about education is why I feel showing them the glands as a launching point because we can talk about the inflammatory aspect and we can also talk about the obstruction aspect. And I want patients to know why we're doing something. And so, you know, having something like, you know, a, a... a, um, like a micro, or like a brooder mask, or you know, without you know, or a specific kind of you know, a mask that they can use to kind of warm up the glands to kind of break some of that obstruction, and why that's relevant and important to do, you know, if not daily, or at least every other day, or even just once a week, something um, using right. something to break up the like a surfactant or even a hypochlor, um, you know, hypochlorous acid or something on a daily basis that they can use to kind of reduce some of the, the lipid or the um, bacterial load. Um, I'm, I'm right. big into now, you know, uh, getting my patients to understand why I'll come by and do like a, remove some of the keratin 
um, to kind of expose and open up those glands when they come in. To me, and then, like Scott said too, I mean, 100%, every one of these patients is on some form of an immunomodulating anti-inflammatory to hit that that inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And we have three drugs out that are approved right now, you know, um, you know, whether it be the cyclosporins or whether it be the lafitograss. There should be no reason why if a patient has any symptoms um, that they shouldn't be on that. And, and like Scott said, I mean, to me, at that initial discussion, to- point two, I talk about how, like dentists, do teeth cleaning, and they do deep clean. We have ways now of using thermal pulsation to heat up the, the glands above the body temperature and basically kind of, you know, get them to, to pulsate out and remove that, and whether it be a manual one like the Ilux or the Tear Care or even something like a one-leave, the OcuSoft device, um, something in the office and you know the the lippy flow being self-contained is something that we can bring them in as well we have in our practice and then lastly it's like what Scott said I mean to me it's all about making sure that our patients understand that these glands are like any other glands in our body and you know being on a good you know nutraceutical um um, you know, a doctor recommended nutraceutical or just talking to them about their own diet and their own environment, um, just to be conscious of that, you know, when they're on a monitor to think about blinking and kind of looking away. I mean, so I, I think the challenge that I find, especially with patients, is, is that if they don't know why they're doing it, then there's no impetus to do it. So to me, Going back to what you said about just telling them why we're doing these things, I think patients really, really respect that, and they can understand why the treatments are there. I, I agree with you, Mark, and that's a, that's a super important point is if they don't understand why it is that we're recommending certain things, I mean, I think that drives compliance way, way down. So, um, again, that sort of is a, another um, ties into the benefits of, of using mybography so that they can, uh, you know, attach those treatment recommendations to what they saw um, and how we explained it to them uh, in the exam room. Well, I think you've both very well laid out the the necessity, if you will, of mybography and how it's changed your practices and your clinical care. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you. All right, thank you for having us, Wendy. Yeah, and thank you for joining us for Dry Eye Coach Podcast. Stay tuned. We'll have new podcasts coming on soon. You did great.